Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. And serve you in a sense. The Hebrew, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. And uh, thank you, Paul, for reading that for us today. A man was uh, a man and his friend were, were talking one day about what they had brought their wives for Christmas, and, and the the friend asked the man, uh, the man, uh, so was, what, what did you buy her for Christmas? And the man replied, I, I brought her a diamond ring. The friend responded, but I thought you. We were going to buy her a four-wheel drive. I thought she wanted a four-wheel drive. Yeah, she did, the man replied, but they don't sell fake ones. <laughs> Men, I trust that your Christmas shopping is a bit more sincere than that. And uh, that you, you take the time and the effort and the sacrifice to, uh, to, you know, to, to share with your wife... Uh, the love that you have for her around this time of year, in fact, for anyone that you uh, buy Christmas gifts for. But is Christmas right? And in the mix of all the festivities, the, the true meaning gets a bit lost, doesn't it? And so it's a great opportunity, really, to inject the truth of Christmas from a biblical perspective. And so to do that, I've selected a passage from the book without a known author. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, this particular book has an unknown author. Some people say it's Paul, but there's no real evidence to prove that it was Paul. Um, some people throughout history thought it was, but Paul had a habit of signing his letters. And you'll find in the book of Hebrews... Uh, there is no signature there from the Apostle Paul. So I brought you to this book of the unknown author and I want to talk about Christmas from it. And I hope to make some sense of this passage for you and I hope to help you understand how this passage is helpful as we enter into the celebration of Christmas Therefore, our passage begins really in verse 1 of chapter 2. And it begins by saying this, for this reason. There's a reason, right? That's why it says, for this reason. For this reason what? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. In other words, the things spoken about Christ from chapter 1 and, and maybe other biblical writings that were circulating at that time for these people they were strongly encouraged by the inspired author to pay attention to that so that they wouldn't what? 
drift away. So that they wouldn't drift away. Oh, how we see that happening in the church today. Where people are drifting away from truth. Drifting away from Christ. And drifting into all kinds of weak and dodgy doctrine. You know, there's so much goo-goo-gaga out there that many Christians are caught up with it, that it's swiftly leading them away from truth. And I don't necessarily mean the the far-out, obvious, charismatic chaos that's on offer these days. I would think that for even the less mature ear, they would easily pick that up. For even the less mature person in Christ, that they would easily pick up the charismatic chaos that's on offer here in this world today and and, and know that it's something that they need to stay away from. But what I'm talking about is the less obvious stuff that subtly creeps into our minds as being authentic and even disguises itself in the cloak of Bible verses and even the name of Jesus. I was looking at a website the other day and it led me to another website and... uh, and there was this video clip and, and this guy's talking about this wonderful ministry that's beginning in Australia and encouraging people to come along because they want to make they want to, they want to make much of the name of Jesus and I thought wow that's great, that's what I'm into and so I went on this particular site and I checked it out and I thought oh my gosh I trust nobody comes here I trust nobody gets on to this stuff But how will we know? I think a lot of people get caught up in that, get taken away by lots of things that come in the name of Jesus, that, that appeals to our emotions. You know, many Christian many Christians are emotional people, and they interpret truth by their emotions. There's the truth. It's there. Not in your emotion. Not in your experience. But it's in the word of God. If you want truth, there it is. Don't trust in your emotion. Don't trust in your experience. But many Christians are being taken away. Because they're not coming here. So I don't necessarily mean the far out obvious charismatic chaos stuff. But the subtly, the subtle things that creep into our minds as being authentic, but they really aren't. In the book of Hebrews, there were things like angel worship, which was a problem that the the recipients of the the book of Hebrews had. They had a problem with worshiping angels. They tended to think that worshiping angels was okay. However, the inspired author of Hebrews believed otherwise. 
They also believed that the continual animal sacrifices added value to their salvation. Yet the inspired author said in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, For it is not possible, what's not possible? That the blood of bulls and goats could what? Useless. Worshipping angels is useless. Animal sacrifices is useless to take away your sin. In fact, that ties you to the law. That ties you to a works-oriented salvation. And that's what people in those days were really tied to. They believed that they could earn their salvation by keeping the law. Hands up if you've tried that. Yeah. Shoot the person who taught you that. Honestly. Because it doesn't get you anywhere but where you're already headed. To hell. So the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so even in that day, they had much to steer them away from truth. But the author of Hebrews makes the point throughout this letter that Jesus is better. I mean, if you want a title to hang over this letter, that's the title you want to hang over it, that Jesus is better than angel worship, animal sacrifice, in fact, anything that you could come up with that you could say that makes a person a Christian apart from Jesus, come to the book of Hebrews. And you will be shocked to learn that there is nothing that a man or woman can do that is better than Christ alone. And in these days for us, and particularly around Christmas, we have a battle on our hands, don't we? We have a battle on our hands to guard our children and even ourselves sometimes against the innocent-looking Mr. Santa Claus. And so we have to be diligent, folks, about teaching our children, about reminding ourselves, we don't want our children to grow up not thinking that Santa Claus is actually a big problem. He is a big problem. I mean, he's not just a big chubby man. He is a big problem. (laughs) And then on the other hand, we don't want them growing up thinking that, that Santa Claus is some kind of divine being. Some He has some kind of divine power and authority and is equal to God, that he is equally powerful, and that he is a competitor with God. We don't want our children to grow up thinking that either. We don't want them to grow up thinking that Santa Claus is that you know is competing with God. Why? Because no one. Not even Satan is in competition with God. That's good news. God has no competitors. He stands alone. 
He is ultimately powerful. He is ultimately sovereign. And Santa Claus has no show. Therefore, we must be even more diligent around this time of year to ensure that our children and even ourselves, you know, Jesus beat Santa Claus by a long shot. And we must ensure that we aren't drifting away from the true meaning of Christmas, that we aren't just worshipping a baby in a manger, but that we are worshipping Christ. He is not a baby in the manger. He is the resurrected Christ. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2 says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. And so the author begs the recipients to pay close attention to what they had heard so that they would not drift away from it. And what they had heard was that Jesus is supreme in every way and that Jesus is sufficient in every way with regard to salvation, with regard to sanctification. In fact, he is supreme and sufficient with regard to all things. Hebrews chapter 1 And he is the radiance, that's Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things. All things, folks, by how? By the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better, having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so the point of the author of Hebrews is that the reader would be satisfied that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is supreme, And that they would not drift away from that. There are many reasons why at this time of year we might drift away from that. The gifts we we receive from our loved ones. Could really rob us of the joy of Christ by thinking that joy comes wrapped in a box. That our hope is found in a cute, cutely wrapped box with something special inside. And, and when, I, when I unwrap that thing, uh, you know, there's my hope, there's my joy. Maybe the food we eat at Christmas is, is so yummy. And we think there's our joy in filling our bellies. Let me say, they are not the reason for the season. And in fact, they don't compare to what we have in Christ. They cannot save a man or a woman. They cannot redeem humanity. And they cannot keep us eternally secure. Those gifts you have given at Christmas, they are great. I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't buy each other 
gifts at Christmas or we shouldn't eat yummy food. I'm not legalistic. What I'm saying is they don't bring us the joy that only Christ gives. Then in verse 9 of chapter 2, the inspired author elaborates more on Christ when he wrote, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so what this is saying is, first of all, it was an act of grace that Jesus died. We're not used to this. You aren't used to this, are you? That it was an act of grace that Jesus died. We tend to believe that grace is to do with salvation. Saved by grace. But this is different. This is death by grace. We tend to believe that grace is to do with salvation but not death. That grace brings about good things. And not bad things. However, here in verse 9, the author clearly states it, that it was an act of God's grace that Jesus should suffer death, that he should taste death. Add that to your understanding of grace. How does that work? Well, we know that the definition of grace is to get what we don't deserve. That's one way of defining grace, to get what you don't deserve. That's why we aren't religious, we are Christian. Because religious people think they get what they deserve because they did something to get it. That's totally not grace. Do you understand that? If you think that, you need to change the definition of grace to another word. Because grace by definition is to get something you actually don't deserve, you could never earn, and you could never get it yourself. It is given to you. So we know that, that that's the definition of grace, to get what we don't deserve, therefore we don't deserve we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to be saved. And guess what? Jesus didn't deserve death. Do you get it? So as an act of grace, he got what he didn't deserve. That's why Pilate rightly stated, I find no fault in this man. In other words, Jesus was innocent, undeserving of death, and yet his death, as we see here, was an act of God's grace. Praise the Lord for grace. And secondly, in verse 10, we read that it was fitting, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom, whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So secondly, we see in verse 10 that it was fitting that Jesus should suffer. Why? In order to bring 
many sons to glory. In order to bring many sons to glory, God's sovereign determination was that Jesus would suffer and die in order that many sons would be brought to glory. You see it? That's what it says. And so what we see here is that Jesus, by an act of God's grace, must taste death in order to bring many sons to glory. And so he's got sons that he must bring to glory. Amen? That's what it says. But in order to get the full weight of this glorious thought, folks, we must assume that Christ has not come yet. Therefore, many sons and daughters have not yet been brought to glory because Christ has not come yet. There is no baby in the manger. There is no child in the belly. He has not come yet. Can you just assume that for a moment with me? Hypothetically. Can you imagine what life would be like had Christ not come? Just for a moment. Oh, I want you to think like this. I want you to think that, that there is no Christmas yet. I want you to think like there, there hasn't been a death on the cross yet. Can you do that for me? I know it's really hard, but let's try and do it. You know, we're, we're, we're dreamers, aren't we? But we can all just imagine that for a moment. Now let's imagine what life would be like had Christ not come yet. If the baby had not been born in the manger yet. If the Christ had not been crucified on the cross yet and been resurrected to life again. Let's imagine that. I would think that the 25th of December would be just another day. If it wasn't a weekday, we'd, we'd be going to work. I would think that uh, there, there would be no need for Santa Claus because there was no Christmas, right? You wouldn't need a Santa Claus because you don't have a Christmas. And I would think that many of the Jews would still be anticipating the coming of Messiah. And the rest of the world would be unevangelized and unreached by the gospel. I don't believe there would be hospitals, schools, nursing homes, orphanages, etc. Because those places were established by Christians. But because Christ hasn't come yet, there aren't any of those establishments. So if we got sick today, good luck. <laughs> no ambos, there's none of that. Christ hasn't come yet. The rulers of countries would be tyrants. They would have no moral compass by which to measure their morality by. There wouldn't be any churches. There'd be no Bible studies. There'd be no Bibles. There'd be no Sunday schools. There'd be no evangelists going out and taking the gospel. There'd be no missionaries. 
if Christ had not come. There'd be no one coming to faith unless you were a Jew and living by the demands of the Old Testament law. You might have some hope. But you soon realise that the, the light at the end of the tunnel keeps getting further and further away. So you'd have no hope. That is unless God would send someone like Jonah to preach the gospel to us and then we might have a chance of repenting and coming to faith. But as you know, people like Jonah didn't like the thought of mingling with heathen nations like ours. And then there would be the problem of sin. We would have no remedy. The curse of Adam would remain on us at the moment of physical death. We would enter into an eternity of a conscious state of hell. Listen to this. Christ must come. Christ must come. Why? Verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Christ must come. Because the Father had many sons that must be brought to glory. And so write this down. One of the reasons for the season is that God had many sons that He must bring to glory. He is committed to His own decrees. It must take place. Otherwise God is a liar and you can't trust Him. And so this must happen. Jesus must come. The birth of Christ must take place. Let me ask you another question. God had one plan. Two plans. God had one plan and then that failed so he had to Come up with plan B. But his first plan changed. Therefore God had to use plan B. Did God fail in plan A. So they needed a plan B. To get himself and humanity. Out of the mess they found themselves in. At the beginning. Now there are many. Christians who understand it that way. They kind of think that God created everything and then created Adam and Eve, put them in the Garden of Eden, gave them the command to not eat the fruit of the, the forbidden tree. However, Eve was tempted by the serpent and she ate it and gave some to Adam and he ate too. And as a result, humanity ended up in a great big mess. 
So at the birth of Jesus, we see plan B in action. Because God's intended plan was for man to live in the garden forever and ever in eternal bliss. Eating every other fruit in the garden except the fruit from the forbidden tree. People believe that's plan A. But they didn't listen. So they ate the fruit. Oh no God guys, what am I going to do now? And so God heads to the office, pulls out plan B, brings it along to the garden, opens it up and says, ah, it's okay. I've got another plan. Look, if that's what you believe, then I want to encourage you to erase that from the hard drives of your minds. And I want you to understand that God has never failed. God never makes a mistake. God has only ever had one plan. God does not discover new information as it happens. Why? Why can we say that? Because if you believe God is all-knowing, that's why you can say that if you don't believe He's all-knowing, you will think otherwise. You will think that he discovers new information as it happens. Do you believe God is all-knowing? Hands up. Yeah. Let's get it. Oh, we've got some teaching to do over here. And I just don't think you heard me. But God is all-knowing. Amen. If you've read your Bibles, you will see that. He knows everything. That God is all-knowing. Do you know what that means? I can tell you now, you actually don't know what that means. Because you don't know what it means to be all-knowing. We have no comprehension of what it means to be all-knowing. We can understand that it means to know everything. That it means to know the end from the beginning. That it means to know when we're going to sit before we even sit. That it means that, that God knows what we're going to say before it even pops out of our mouth. And that God knows what we're thinking. Right now, He knew that before you thought it. My gosh. I just thought about that. And we're still here. Breathing. You're still here breathing. And God knows everything about you. Every sin in your heart right now. Every sinful thought you were thinking. Tomorrow. And you're still here. Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Anybody know how long infinite is? I, I tried measuring it, but I just get stuck, you know. <laughs> I can't count beyond, you know, 
the, the Trezillians. Um, it's infinite, isn't it? That's why I said we, we don't know what it means to be all-knowing. But God is all-knowing. And so in knowing the reality of what Adam and Eve would do, remember God's only got one plan. In knowing the reality of what Adam and Eve would do, God's plan from before the foundations of the world was that he would send God the Son to redeem the many sons and daughters and bring them to glory. That is why we read in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 to 21, For he, that's Jesus, was foreknowing. When? Before the foundation of the world. But has appeared in these last times. Why? For the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope are in you. Oh sorry, in, in God. <laughs> Let's get that right eh. Your faith and hope are not in you. Your faith and your hope are in God. It's in God. The all-knowing God. The all-wise God. The all-powerful God who has no competitors. There's nobody good enough to compete with Him. But it's in God. So folks, Christ must come. He must come. And in heaven, prior to the virgin birth of Christ, the Son and the Father, actually they, they had this discussion, you could call it, you know, the Christmas Eve conversation. Hebrews 10 verse 5. Jesus is having a conversation with God the Father and this conversation is... It is a quote from the Old Testament found in Psalm 40. And so this conversation takes place before the incarnation or the birth of Christ. And listen to what Jesus said to the Father before he comes as the baby. He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The body was the baby you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus said, Behold, I come. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, Jesus said. To do what? To do the will of God. To bring many sons to glory. See the, the birth of Christ wasn't just the way of God displaying his ability to come down in human form. But the birth of Christ had more purpose behind it than that. As we read here it was to bring many sons to glory. And you and I could be saved. 
For without Christ there is no salvation. You still have that hypothetical thought that Christ has not come yet? And do you see now the need that we have as heathen people destined for an eternity in hell if God doesn't keep his word? And do you see the need for a redeemer? Do you see the need for a perfect sacrifice? So Christ must come. Christ must come because the world needs hospitals. The world needs schools, the world needs orphanages, the world needs foster carers, the world needs churches, the world needs the Bible, the world needs Sunday schools, the world needs evangelists, the world needs missionaries. But if there is no Christ, then there is none of that. And so Christ must come. And so Hebrews 10 verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I have come. Behold, I have come. Chapter 2, verse 14, you can flick there, I don't have it on the screen, but we're told that He came. He came in the form of a man, the body which was prepared for Him to free men from the slavery of sin and to crush the serpent's head. Verse 14 and 15, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise also partook of the same. The same what? Flesh and blood. Why? That through death, that's the cross, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know why he came as a man? Do you know why he was born to a virgin? He was born to a virgin in order that no man could take credit for the credit which it belongs only to God. He was born to the virgin so that Joseph could not take credit for that baby. Imagine if she wasn't a virgin. Joseph could have easily have taken credit for that. He was born to a virgin in order that no man could take credit for what is God's alone. Jesus said to do your will, O God. It was God's will that 
that had been realised in the birth of Christ, not man's will. It was never man's will for Jesus to be born that way. It wasn't. It's all God's will, God's will. God did it all. And so it was God's will that had been realised in the birth of Christ, not man's. And so he had to be born to a virgin in order that the corrupt nature of Adam would not mar him. Therefore the sacrifice of Christ would be pleasing and acceptable to God because it was unblemished, without stain and without sin. The religious man and woman have much work to do in order to accomplish what only Christ alone has accomplished. Only Christ is the one who hasn't sinned. There's only one in this entire universe who has not sinned. Do you know what that means? <laughs> you said it. We've all sinned. And we're all sinners. 1 John, if you say you have not sinned, you make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in you. Never say you have not sinned. Because that might mean the truth is not in you. Always be happy to admit that you have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But there is one who hasn't, and that is Christ alone, born to a virgin, in order that the Adam's corruption would not mar him. He had to be a perfect and spotless lamb. Christ had come only as divine and not human. Answering the question and you know, why did he come as a man? Christ had only come as divine and not human, then we would have deep problems. Do you know why? Because the moment he died on the cross, the whole universe would have ceased to exist. Why do I say that? Because God cannot die. If God was on the cross dying, Life would cease to exist. He must come as a man. He must die on that cross as a man. And the reason why anything exists in this world today is because God exists. Before when Jesus came, he came not only as divine, but also human. And although his birth is significant, we should remember that it wasn't a baby hanging on the tree. It was the man Christ. And so Christ's birth meant and means that many sons and daughters will come to glory they will come that's why in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 the apostle Paul says that we were chosen before the foundations of the world there are the many sons and daughters before the foundations of the world that must be brought to glory 
And at the birth of Jesus Christ, God's promise is made possible. So we celebrate, folks, not only the birth of Jesus, but also the result of the birth. That is the death and resurrection of Christ from the dead. I don't know how you celebrate Christmas. But I would trust that as you remember Christ this Christmas. And you remember the baby in the manger. Don't forget the man on the tree. Not that tree. tree where he paid for your sin and redeemed you, bringing you to glory. Amen.